Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, at the end of verse 10, it just has a sentence that it has a definition contained in there. Revelation 19, verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him. He said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And here it is. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That sentence, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I read that many times over without ever having even, I think, the slightest concrete image in my mind of really what those phrases meant. And if we go, let's think word by word here. The testimony of Jesus, if I were to ask anybody in here to come up and give your testimony, the normal use of the English word testimony, we would all be in expectation that you would do what? That you would describe how you heard about Jesus, maybe how you made the decision how you came to accept Jesus in your life. That's kind of what we mean by the word, the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus, it says, is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy. Every one of us in here, alive and well, our spirit is what animates us. Our spirit is what gives us the, it's, it's what God breathed into Adam. He became a living soul. If you take away our spirit, the body falls to the ground. Because even though the, the flesh has a, a certain life in it, it's the spirit that, that gives it that life. So, the testimony of Jesus, the, the story of Jesus, the story of how Jesus um, was, the whole idea was designed by God, how it was foretold by God, how Jesus, God here into the earth, the life that he lived, his disciples, the death that he experienced, his resurrection, his ascending to the Father, and his coming back to the earth. That whole story of Jesus could all be put into the one word, testimony. The testimony of Jesus is, it's the spirit of prophecy. It's what gives prophecy life. It's what makes it interesting. It's what uh, gives it value. I love prophecy. I do. I, I like listening to, to prophecy teachers, even though maybe half of them, there's most of what they say, I, I'm, I'm not sure it's even biblical. But I still enjoy the idea of listening and seeing, are they supporting what they're saying with, with the scripture? And that doesn't mean they're wrong. I'm no expert. I'm just giving you my, my personal in, uh, inclination. I love how the Bible foretells things and how accurate that it is. The testimony of Jesus, his life, his whole story, that is what the spirit of prophecy is. When we talk about prophecy, sometimes we immediately think of uh, the Bible giving us a certain prediction of a certain event, and that is true. But really, most of those events, what it's talking about is something that has to do with our Lord and Savior. And we're going to start at the beginning of the Bible and work our way almost through the whole thing and just throw out some examples of how God really does give information. That he does not just put man on the earth and man walks his time and he's just lucky to find out some things. God actually took the time to not only 
write, but he preserved this, this enormous book. And there is so much information in here. So we're going to look at times even when, when God gave specific dates, specific numbers of years of when things would happen. The reason for doing this is to get, I think, some perspective of what God intended when he gave us the Bible. What are we supposed to learn from it? What are we supposed to look toward God as a character of his? And one of those is he's, he's so faithful. He's so faithful that he is not scared to put out there such and such will happen in either this chronological order or it will happen on this date. He's not scared of that because it proves his divinity. It's not possible for the things contained in this book to have been put there by man. Genesis chapter 6. Let's go back to Noah. Genesis chapter 7 is when the flood starts. And this is a very small example, but Genesis chapter 7, and in verse 4, the previous verses, God has told Noah, you get yours, get your kindred, get the animals, everybody in the ark. And look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 4. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth. So Noah knows if he believes in God, that seven days from him hearing that, it's going to start to rain. And God goes beyond that. He doesn't just say that on the day it's going to start to rain. He tells him when it starts, it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's going to destroy everything on the earth. Look how accurate God is. He did not tell Noah it's going to rain for a while. He told Noah it will rain. And you could imply the word exactly 40 days and 40 nights. You read through this story, and there's a time even when Noah is getting off of the ark that he stays on the ark an extra period of time. God told Noah everything about what to expect in his, uh, his, this life goal of his of building an ark. If you think back even in the previous chapter, he comes to Noah and says that the inclination of men's heart is evil continually, and he said, I've given them 120 years. And that's going to be the end of man, except for you and your family and anybody that accepts your preaching. In 120 years. Even the life of Methuselah, the guy that was, it was uh, Noah's grandfather, I believe, he died at the same time right before the flood came. And there was that, that knowledge of what his name meant, that when he dies, the flood's coming. God gives information. Let's go to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13. God is talking to Abram, and Abram doesn't even have his son yet. And he starts to tell him in verse 13, Know of a surety. God is a certain God. Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them four hundred years. The Bible sometimes has different ways of counting chronologically. In this instance, it uses the number four hundred. We'll see in Exodus, when this actually takes place, it describes it as four hundred and thirty. And when you get to the book of Acts in the New Testament, Stephen is giving his sermon, and he describes it as 430. Don't get thrown off by the difference. They sometimes, God has a certain parenthetical 
amount of time in there that is either counted or not counted, depending on what he's talking about. But anyway, he tells Abraham, 400 years, your kids, your, gener- your uh, genealogy, they are going to be servants in a strange land. Keep a finger there. Go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Starting in verse 37, it says, The children of Israel, they journeyed, coming out of Egypt, about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children. So here they come. The entire nation of Israel is coming out of slavery. Verse 39, They baked unleavened breads, which they brought forth out of Egypt. Verse 40, The sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the self-same day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now, that's a, a, in a 400 or 430 year period to be on this, the exact day. You think about everything that transpired during that time. Obviously, Abraham is not around, the man who received this prophecy from God. 430 years and God is still intent on keeping his word to the day. The people that were being delivered out of Egypt. We don't have record that it says that they were counting down to the days. But when Moses came back with that word from God that we're coming out, He was very sure. And when you read that account, Pharaoh tries to buy off Moses a couple times, and he tells him, we'll let some of you go out into the desert, but then you have to come back. And sometimes he mentioned, we'll let you go out, but you have to leave your animals here, because he knew they would need food out there, and they'd have to come back maybe for that. And Moses said, we will not leave a hoof behind. He actually used that language. Moses was so certain of God's promise that not only were they leaving a horrible condition just as God had promised, they weren't even going to leave some animals behind. I can tell you, if I had been in a jail cell most of my life, if I had lived the the slave conditions that these people lived, there's a lot of things I would have bartered for that you could have as long as you give me my freedom. But not Moses. He knew what God had said. He had full, he was completely convinced that we're all leaving here. And I don't need to do man's system of bartering because I don't have to worry that you have any control over this. He told Pharaoh, when we leave, we're taking every hoof that we own with us. And they end up, when they leave, taking what? A lot of the Egyptian money. Those Israelites knocked on their doors and they they knocked on the Egyptian doors and the Egyptians gave them their money. They begged them, the Bible says, to get out of Egypt in the end. God's timing is amazing. And what that story shows is that you can be in the worst possible situation of your life and it can change overnight. Sometimes we think, man, it took me a long time to get here. And it's true. And our human reasoning thinks it's probably going to take at least those same 15 years to get out of this. It doesn't have to be that way. God is a miracle-working God. And if nothing else, this verse shows that God does care about what he has told people. He can make it happen like that 430 years to the day. Now remember, 
God is the one that works through the arm, the hand, the wrist to write this book. He works through man's hand to inspire, to write these words. So it's by God's design that that is contained in there. He wants the reader to know. The self-same day, the very day when the time was up that I said they'd be there, they're coming out. Remember that this is God's book. He designed it this way. He wants the reader to have a certain confidence in his character that he keeps his word. Back to Genesis chapter 41. Next story you might be thinking of in the Bible, and this is by no means a comprehensive list. This is just some that I thought were easy to explain and look at. Genesis 41 is the story of Joseph. You know his story quite well. At this point in the story, he is now, he has been brought out of the dungeon to interpret a dream of Pharaoh's. Pharaoh had a dream. And if you'll remember, Pharaoh's dream was that there was seven good, kind, well-fed, and seven ill, thin, starving kind that came up and they ate the fat ones. And then he woke up and he had the dream again, and except this time it was seven good ears of corn, and then seven withered ears of corn came up and devoured the seven good ears of corn, and he doesn't know what it means. One of his servants says, I know a guy that interprets dreams, and he brought Joseph out of the dungeon, brings him before Pharaoh, and look at verse 20. Seven. The seven thin and ill-favored kind that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blasted with the east wind shall be seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken unto Pharaoh. What God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. Joseph, if you keep reading there, interprets the dream as God gives him the ability that what he saw was the future that there was coming seven very plenteous, good, growing years. But after that, there were going to come seven years of famine where nothing would grow. Pharaoh, after hearing this, there's something that moves in him. He recognizes, that, as he says later in this, that the Spirit of God is on this Joseph, and we're going to do what he says. In fact, we're going to put him in charge of this, and we're going to make him second only to me, Pharaoh, in name only. He said, nobody in my dominion will do anything unless you tell them to. So Joseph, in the seven good years, stores up the extra food, everything they can get their hands on, so that in the seven years of famine, the people won't starve, that they'll have a storage of food. That's when his family, Joseph, Jacob, and the, the, the kids come from the Palestinian area, come into Egypt to get corn, And it happened just as God gave it. He spoke even to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not a God-fearing man necessarily. We have no record that he believed in the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wasn't on his knees. God still gave this man this vision so that Joseph would be able to interpret in front of the whole crowd, and he proved himself. See, it would be very, very convincing. You heard this man in the palace, and he was brought out of a dungeon. And in the next seven years, things are fantastic, exactly like he said. And in that eighth year, nothing grew. And for those next seven years, it was famine like you can't believe. Where all, even the surrounding countries hear that there's corn stored down, they come down there, and the Bible says they sold their children, 
And they sold their land in exchange for food. God speaking into the earth. How about Jeremiah chapter 25? Let's skip ahead. Oh, they're breathing a sigh of relief. We, we skipped even over Isaiah. Lots of things. Jeremiah chapter 25. And at this point in history, the Israelites have not been very faithful to God. They've had terrible kings. And because of it, God has told them, I am going to remove you off the land. And he tells them for 70 years. The book of Jeremiah, the main part of it is that Jeremiah writes a letter to the Israelites and says, when Babylon puts a siege around here and takes you people back to Babylon, don't fight it. Because you're going to be fighting the plan of God. You've been evil. And it's God's design that you be removed out the land. So when you get there, be peaceful. Plant some vineyards so you and your kids have something to eat in the next generation. Genesis, uh, Jeremiah 25, verse 11. And this whole land shall be desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it shall come to pass, when 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity. Now let's put some things in perspective. This is not meant to single anyone out, but Isla has been here and she made, can remember what took place possibly 70 years ago on the earth. Anybody in their 70s, 80s, 90s, if you were to ask them when they were or just 70 years ago, would it have been possible for any human being to predict world events to the point that an entire nation would be removed off their land. It even names the nation that would do it. Give the exact duration of the time that they were there, that they would be released. And God does this stuff. He does it over and over. What is the exclamation point on this story, in my mind, is what happens when it's time to leave when the 70 years has taken place. Now think what, takes, what happens in 70 years. Entire nations sometimes disappear off the earth. I mean, their culture, they may be beaten in war and subdued and put into slavery. They may have their language changed. There's all kinds of things that, that happen. 70 years. Go to Daniel chapter 9. Lamentations, Ezekiel... Daniel chapter 9. Look how unified the Bible is. Daniel 9, verse 1. Um, let's do verse 2. Daniel 9, 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. This verse tells us that while Daniel was a captive in Babylon, he was reading. He was reading a scroll that had been preserved of the book of Jeremiah. And as he was reading, he very likely read the verse that we were just at, 25.11 in Jeremiah, where it says that God determines 70 years are going to transpire. It even named that you're going to be in Babylon. So think, this man is now sitting in Babylon. The nation that God determined would take his people off. 
He's sitting in Babylon and he's reading that we are going to be slaves, servants in Babylon for 70 years. And he starts doing some math. And he starts thinking how when that was, because that's a major day in world history. All the Israelites knew when it was they got taken off there. And Daniel says, it says here that he understood. He understood that it's been 70 years, so what does he do? The rest of the chapter of Daniel 9 is all a prayer, most of it, where he prays to God, are you going to keep your word? You told us it was going to be 70 years. And Daniel, in a way, is getting excited. He, he prays a prayer of, of forgiveness and shame. He, asks, he, he confesses to God the sins of the nation. We have done all these things. You were completely righteous in removing us. But now it's time to go back. And he prays to God for his nation. Look at verse 24. An angel comes in the previous verses, sent by God to talk to Daniel about his prayer for his nation. That 70 years are up. And if God is going to keep his word, it is time for them to go back. Look at verse 24. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Those are all forgiveness phrases. Those are words and ideas that have to do with sin being cleansed. A reconciliation for iniquity, to make an end of sins, to finish the transgression. And the angel is telling Daniel that 70 weeks. Now, that in the language, what he's talking about are seven-year periods. There are 70 seven-year periods that are determined upon the nation of Israel. This is what the angel is telling Daniel. Seventy times seven. If you're a math guy, that's 490 years are determined upon the nation of Israel to do these things. To finish transgression, make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Think of this. The angel is getting very specific language here to a man about what is going to transpire in world history. At the end of verse 24, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. He's talking about the Messiah that is getting ready to come to the earth. Look at verse 25. This is one of the top five, maybe, most important verses in the Old Testament. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, and the reason they have to restore it and rebuild it is the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, they burned it, they starved them out, they destroyed most of that city as they took them back to Babylon. The angel is now saying the decree, when you get a ruler that stands up and says, you guys can go back, you can go rebuild Jerusalem. This verse says, that there shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Add up seven, three score and two, that's 69. There's going to be 69 times seven, or 483 years. Till what? Well, right above that it said, until the Messiah, the Prince. 
During this time, even a secular history book will tell you. You can go home and you can research this in books, Google, the internet, any way you want. The Persians were the ones that conquered the Babylonians. And the Persians had a king named Darius. And they... Uh, you were just going to correct me. What's his name? Cyrus. This Persian king, Cyrus. Darius was the guy that did it, but Cyrus came after him, and he is the one that decreed and said, you Israelites, you can go back. He gave a public decree. Your, your servanthood is over. You do not have to stay here inside our borders. You can go back. And historians know the day that that happened. They know the year that it happened. You can start to count, as it says in this verse, that the angel gave to Daniel 483 years, and you are at the time of Jesus. As it says in that verse, until Messiah the Prince comes, it's going to be 483 years. Now see, God nailed down exactly when his word had to take place, because remember, he gave all these different promises of what was coming into the earth that there was something special, a Savior, a Redeemer, a Holy One of Israel. And God puts himself on the map in this verse, and it can't be changed. It's remarkable. But you think in human terms, 483 years, that's a long time. It means you and I can't get together and conspire about how we can make it happen or stop it from happening. People come and they go. They live and they die. They are born and they are buried for 483 years, and yet when the time shows up, an angel visits a little virgin girl and tells her, that thing that's growing inside of you is from the Lord. It's amazing how accurate God is in this Bible. Maybe we should stop here for about a minute or two and just discuss the, what is the Bible? You know, there's there's a lot of Christians that if you would say the word Bible, they think there's, there's, some, uh, there's some do's and don'ts in there, and tr- that's true. There's a list of commandments, there's a things not to do. But that's not all what the Bible is. We don't read the Bible just as a, how, how would I even describe this? Uh, it, it's not a, a quarterly. The Bible is the inspired word of God, and if you study it like that, if you look for details, these are the things that start to jump out and you notice something about the God that we serve. He is, it's remarkable. He is de- de- describing and delineating world history for the reader to prove that this book had to be divine, come from divine origins. There's no way man could do any of this. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 25, and let's go now to the New Testament when this stuff begins to happen. Go to the very first verse in the New Testament. If, if, if nothing else, what this hour is, it, it's a way to view your Bible. After going through some of those things in the Old Testament and looking at the Old Testament from a perspective of God's plan, God's design, what he intends to have come into the earth, look at the first verse in the New Testament. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why is that important? Or even is there any significance, importance in those words? Why does it matter? Why does the Bible take time to point out that Jesus came from who? 
He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. And then the next however many 20 verses are describing the lineage of everybody who had a ba- the baby that, that the lineage was counted all the way from Abraham to Jesus. Why would the New Testament start that way? Think of it from God's perspective. The main promise was that God watched over this nation of Israel, even though so many nations tried to exterminate them, destroy them. God marched them through the Red Sea coming out of Egypt. Miracles. He drove out nations before them. Miracles. To preserve them. So that something that would come through their loins, a Savior, the Messiah. And the first thing that the New Testament does is it points out that God is... He has kept his word. That Messiah, the Bible said so many times, had to come from the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. You get to the New Testament thousands of years later, and how does God start it? Jesus Christ, this guy we're about to describe his whole life, he came from David, and he came from Abraham. See, it couldn't happen any other way. The Messiah had to be from that lineage. And these... The Bible takes precious ink to describe people like Salmon and Boaz, Rahab, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David, every bit of lineage to keep in mind that what God said would happen has happened. Now look at verse 18. Let's get to the meat of the story. Here he comes. Verse 18 in chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Those three verses are describing what? Circumstances around his birth. They're describing a situation that is the most unique birth scenario the earth has ever even imagined. That a young girl who'd never known a man was now pregnant. Now that's strange. And it would be a little hard to swallow except for what fact? The next verse. Uh, I need to go two verses. And she shall bring forth a son that shall call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. Verse 22. This was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I would have a difficult time accepting those verses 18 through 20 describing this little virgin girl becoming pregnant, except for this fact. 700 years earlier in Isaiah's time, God had promised the earth in Isaiah 7.14 that I'm going to give you a sign, it says, that a virgin shall bring forth a child. And it even gave the name 700 years ago, Emmanuel. Look at God writing his Bible. When he comes to describe Jesus being born of the earth, he stops and points us back into history and says, verse 22, Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Trying to give the reader a sense of his perspective. Think of God. He's sitting up above and he can see from Adam to Noah to Abraham, David, 
all these people down to Jesus. And, and through all this time, he had told the earth, he had made promises. And when it comes time for these promises to start being fulfilled, what does God always do? Just like he did in Exodus when they marched out of Egypt. And it came to pass on the self-same day. God put that in there. Here, when Jesus is born, it says, now all this is done. Sounds weird, sounds strange, except I told you about it over 700 years ago. And it's coming to pass. Skip forward to chapter 2. The wise men come from the east. They come to Herod, and look at verse 5. It says, they said unto him, uh, I need to go back, uh, verse 3. When Herod the king had heard these things from the wise men, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered his chief priests and scribes and the people together, he demanded them where Christ, or the Messiah, where should he be born? Isn't that remarkable? That they then, in the next verse, verse 5, they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, even those non-believers knew where the Messiah was promised to come. See, you and I, we sit here in America, 2,000 years removed from this time, and we read over that, and you really don't grab the significance. Herod turns to people who are not necessarily even followers of God always. He wasn't. And Herod knew that it's recorded somewhere. Those people living at that time, they all knew this is what God had put into the earth. They knew he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He's born under their noses and they still don't even know. Verse, let's go down to chapter, let's see, verse 17. Um, I need something before that. Verse 15. The previous two verses, an angel comes to Joseph and said, Herod, he's mad because the wise men didn't go back and tell him where they found him, and he's going to try to kill every child two years and younger to make sure he gets Jesus in that net and destroys him. The wise men don't tell Herod, so he has to go back, Herod does, and kill everybody two years and younger to try to make sure. Because of that, an angel comes to Joseph and says, Get out of here. Take Mary, the child, and go into Egypt. And in verse 15... They were there until the death of Herod. Why? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. In the, in the many prophecies about the Messiah, it was recorded several different times, saying he's going to come, he'll be called out of Egypt. And you can see how it's a little bit confusing. He was promised to be born in Bethlehem. He was going to be raised as a Nazarene, as we'll see here next. And yet God called him out of Egypt. Well, if you're living before the time of Jesus, it's probably impossible in your own human mind to put it all together to see how it could happen. When you get on this side of it, you look back and you think, the Bible's so accurate. Even though you couldn't really see it before it took place, God made all of these scenarios where Mary and Joseph, because of the taxation, had to go back to his hometown to Bethlehem where he was born. Although they're supposed to be living in Nazareth. When, that's when they come out and they go back to live in Nazareth. But before even that, they have to go to Egypt because Herod's trying to kill them. And God works all of these things in a perfect scenario where he tells us even beforehand to confirm his word. So, last verse uh, in this chapter. Uh, we'll read verse 22. When he had heard 
that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod. Herod had died, now his son is reigning. Joseph, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. We're, we went through the first two chapters in the New Testament. First two. Should have looked to see how many chapters there were in the New Testament to put it in perspective. But in the first two, we've just looked at seven different examples where God told the story of his son getting to the earth and each time an event happened, he would stop and say, this happened because I told you about it in the Old Testament. You start, I think, if nothing else, to get a an appreciation for the a characteristic of God. And that is contained in Amos chapter 3. Amos is right, is it after Hosea? Hosea, Joel, then Amos. Hosea, Joel, Amos chapter 3. Verse 7. Hmm. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Now, I want to make sure we understand what that is saying. I'm not advocating that that is saying he tells me how many kids I'm going to have, what job I'm going to have. When When it says God will do nothing, he's talking about his plan for mankind in the earth. Isla, would you please read your translation? In that phrase, his plan. What is he revealing to mankind? And that verse says he's always revealing it. He doesn't do anything in the earth except that he reveals his plan through his prophets. When we think of the word prophecy, there for some well, and it's not just for some reason. It, it's been because of how it's been approached. But we always look at prophecy probably a little bit skewed. Prophecy is God introducing his plan into the earth for a reason. And what is the reason? Why does God tell us beforehand? You, you naturally are thinking, and, and you may not phrase it in certain words, but John chapter 13 phrases it for us. The Gospel of John. It tells us why God tells us, prophesies, predicts things in advance. And you know, again, I, like, I point this out because I think there's a perspective here. Most Christians don't think this way toward God. They think we're always kept in the dark. And of course, we, we are in, in some things. But in his plan for humanity... We're not. John chapter 13, verse 19. And he is, in the previous verses, describing how one of the disciples are going to betray him. And he says, I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. We need to stop and break this down. It is... On the face, it's easy to understand, but there's a couple of important things here. I tell you before it come to pass, that when it does come to pass, you might believe. Might believe what? 
that I am the son of Joseph? No. That I am he. Who is, what's, what does he mean? What's contained in those two letters, H-E? The whole story of the Messiah, the promised person that God would send into the earth. And Jesus is saying, one of you guys, one of you disciples, you're going to betray me. And I'm going to die because of it. Now, I'm telling you this beforehand, and this would, this would be fulfilled in just days. And Jesus says, I'm telling you beforehand so that when it does come to pass, you can look back and you can, you can understand there's, there's no way he could have known that. It, that. That's another building block in the conclusion. that He really was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. It says something similar in John chapter 14. What, verse 29, John 14. Jesus is promising. He said, I'm going to leave. He's talking about his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. And in verse 29, Now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. The reason that prophecy seems to be such a big part of the Bible, is God obviously has a desire for what? In my mind, I, I phrase it, God, he enjoys proving himself. There's too many Christians that think that, that we, we can't know anything about God, that everything is by faith. And yes, we are saved by faith, but God gives us so many proofs. The people of Jesus' day asked him, why don't you give us a sign for this authority of the stuff that you do? And we, We've done this before. What did Jesus say? He told them, just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the whale, he said, I will be, or the Son of Man will be, three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. He was giving them another prediction so that when he came out, everybody could look back and say, he told us. You don't find where God does something and then he asks people to believe him. He first tells the earth, he tells mankind what is going to take place. It's a remarkable nature of his. It then comes to pass exactly like he says. They may come out of 430 years in the self-same day that it happens. With Noah, it, it, it will rain in seven days. You better get in there, and it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. In Daniel or Jeremiah, you, you people are going to be taking off this land of Israel for 70 years. And in Daniel, 70 years are over, and when they give the decree that you guys can go back to Israel, you better start marking your calendars because 483 years, Messiah will be here. And you know, in that verse, it even says Messiah will be cut off but not for himself, meaning he'll die, but not for his own behavior. He will die for the sins of the world. All of these events, God always tells us beforehand so that mankind has something to trust God, to put your faith in, that this, he never lies. The Bible says over and over, God is not a man that he should lie. His ways are higher than ours, he does things in such a way as to, to prove himself. What is that in John chapter, there it is, John chapter 20. 
John chapter 20 and the last two verses. John chapter 20, verse 30. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, can't even contain. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now contained in that last verse, God wrote this Bible. And he wrote it in such a way, he chose the stories, he chose the events to put into here so that the reader would read these stories about different places, different people, different interventions of God, different miracles, and that they would come to a conclusion that this person that we call Jesus of Nazareth, he, there's no other way but that the Messiah was him. Had to have been him. God wrote his book in that way so that any reader and any observer of mankind could conclude there's only one person that really could be the Messiah, and it was Jesus. And think, after all this, they put him on a cross, torture him, put him in the grave, and just like he said, three days later. Three days Later, he comes out of the grave. The Bible says he was seen by hundreds of people as he was here for 40 days. And there was many of those disciples that were there in Acts as he is taken into the clouds. And as soon as he's gone, there's an angel standing next to him saying what? Why stand you here gazing? This same Jesus whom you have seen go into heaven. He shall come in like manner. God is always telling mankind what his plan is so that they can be looking for it, they can have an expectation that God will hold his word. The Bible even tells us we can hold God's feet to the fire. It says, God said, come and let us reason together. Recall unto me the things of old that I have told you. It says that in Isaiah. This nature of God, he, he does not mind being put on the spot. And he's told us all these things toward the end of the book that are still yet to happen. Now there is one thing that he has said is coming, but he will not tell us when. There's a lot of things we read. That's one reason I did the numbers thing. 430 years, they're going to be slaves, and they came out the same day. 70 years, they're in Babylon, and they come out at the exact, same, at the exact right time. 483 years, and the Messiah is going to be here, and he was here. But when it talks about Jesus coming back the second time, the Bible goes out of its way to say you cannot know the day or the hour. Now, why in the world would he do that? There's a principle in the New Testament where it says over and over, no man can know the day or the hour. Jesus said even the angels in heaven don't know. It said my father only. Well, one reason you could guess, surmise, or maybe reason is that God wants us to live in such a way that we better be ready no matter when he comes back. If it was tonight, we're supposed to live ready to go. The Bible teaches us we should live as if he's never coming back in our lifetime, keep working, keep planning, keep reaching people. We don't just take our spiritual vacation and say, well, he's coming soon, I don't have to do anything else. That's not what we're supposed to do. But we are supposed to have that 
that hope. I think it's in 1 John, maybe chapter 3, where it says that this hope that we have of him coming back, this hope is what purifies us. Because of that thought, he, he could come back tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for what is all contained in your Bible, and we pray that each one of us would be strengthened and encouraged and enriched. Lord, I pray for every person here and that attends pastors' churches, that the blessing of the Lord would go before them in their life, that you would watch over and keep them, that you would bless them with health, with peace and joy. We pray, Lord, for pastor, that you would watch over and keep him. Help us to all be the best friends that we can to him, that we would all add to him in his life, we would not take away. We pray that all the people in his churches would, would uh, live in unity. We would not cause strife. Lord, bring him back safely to us in Jesus' name. Amen.